0: Welcome to Chiropractic Science, where you get to hear interviews with leading chiropractic researchers from around the world. Hear about chiropractic research from the authors in plain English, not through the media, nor a middleman. My name is Dr. Dean Smith, and I am the host of Chiropractic Science. I am a clinical professor in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control, and human performance. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing Dr. Michael Meyer. But before we get to the interview, I wanted to thank all of you who have subscribed to Chiropractic Science, and I'm especially appreciative to all of you who have contributed five-star reviews on iTunes. iTunes really helps others find out about Chiropractic Science. So, if you like the show, please take a second and write a review. It will support chiropractors everywhere. Here is a review from... Raffle G, who says, wow, now that is a great podcast. Very good quality, science-based for clinicians and researchers. I'm an osteopathy student in Europe, and I love listening to this podcast. It's like listening to The Drive, which I also like, but in the field of manual medicine. Great work. Well, thank you, Raffle G, uh, for your review, and I look forward to sharing your iTunes review in a future podcast. Please consider making a contribution to Chiropractic Science to keep these podcasts going. You can do so on our website either by making a donation or purchasing the evidence-based patient education slides presentation at chiropracticscience.com. All right, on to the podcast. Well, let's get on to the interview with Dr. Michael Meyer. Dr. Michael Meyer is a senior pain researcher and group leader at the Department of Chiropractic Medicine at the University of Zurich. He received his master's degree in neuropsychology and his doctorate in cognitive neuroscience from the University of Zurich, focusing on the processing of pain and nociception in the brain. In 2019, he received a grant from the Swiss National Science Foundation, or SNF, to study the role of movement behavior and cortical processes in the development and persistence of low back pain. A hallmark of his work is linking research from different disciplines such as biomechanics, neuroscience, and psychology, shedding light on novel interacting pathomechanisms underlying persistent low back pain whose pathoanatomical cause is often unclear. Well, Dr. Meyer, thanks so much for coming on the Chiropractic Science Podcast.
1: Well, Dean, thanks a lot for having me. Looking
0: forward to it. Absolutely. I think we're going to have some fun uh, because uh, a lot of this research that you're doing is just really cool, cutting-edge stuff. Uh, and frankly, I, th- I think clinicians around the world really need to, to know about and-, and get a better understanding of the kind of work that you're doing. And as a researcher that um, you know has followed your work for a number of years, I'm-, I'm just really pumped up to have you on. So I appreciate that.
1: Well, thank you very much for reading our research papers and your
0: interest in our research. Absolutely. So first, Dr. Meyer, um, I'd like to, uh, again, thank you for all your great research and, and the work that your group's been doing. And I wonder if you could uh, tell us now, you're you're at the uh, Department of Chiropractic Medicine at the University of Zurich. So how did you how did you get there uh, to this uh, chiropractic medicine department, and uh, wh- what kind of stuff are you up to now?
1: Okay, yeah. So, well, um, as a young guy, based on my interest for IT and computers, I started first to study business informatics, and um, a coincidence had led to let's say, a brutal change in direction regarding my studies. Namely, I attended a lecture of Professor Luzienke at the University of Zurich. And uh, Lucienke is a neuropsychologist and is known for his groundbreaking work regarding functional plasticity of the human brain. And his lectures were so entertaining and the topic was so fascinating for me that I decided to terminate my studies in business informatics and start with psychology with a special interest in neuroimaging. So I've then touched the pain research area during my master's and was fascinated about the complex interplay between emotion, nociception, and pain in particular, the ability of our brain to suppress pain by top-down modulation of nociceptive input. And as a consequence, my master thesis was about pain, more specifically about uh, brain mechanisms of dental pain using functional magnetic resonance imaging. And yeah, you may ask now why dental pain. Um, The reason is quite simple, because it's It's a very suitable model to investigate brain mechanisms underlying pain processing because the tooth pulp has a lot of the so-called A-delta fibers, which are responsible for this very pure, sharp pain sensation. And so we developed, during my PhD studies, uh, we developed a MR-compatible or MR-compatible splints with embedded electrodes, but also other stimulators, uh, which were able to apply very cold air to the teeth to, yeah, let's say, torture uh, the people in the MR scan and to investigate cortical pain mechanisms related to dental pain and relief. Wow. And, yeah, I, com- <laughs> I completed my PhD in this area, which uh, was also supported by GlaxoSmithKline, And after my PhD, I I stayed as a a postdoc at the Center of Dental Medicine, um, further pursuing those projects. And and this was the time where I came in contact um, with Professor Kim Humphreys and Sabina Hotz from the Department of Chiropractic Medicine at the Walgrest University Hospital. Uh, Just as a short note, the the Walgrest University Hospital in Zurich is an academic hospital focusing on musculoskeletal disorders and the Integrated Chiropractic Medicine Clinic provides chiropractic care to a broad patient uh, population. So it was Kim Humphreys who offered me a postdoc position there to establish a functional MRI paradigm to investigate brain responses to back stimulation, for example, based on anterior-posterior pressure on different segments. And at this time, functional MRI was still, or it is still a very sexy research area, and almost nothing was now, uh, known about um, brain mechanisms underlying spinal manipulation or, or mobilization. And also during this time, and still, the, the functional MR research area was advancing very fast, so... New methods were integrated, such as the machine learning and other pattern recognition methods. And um, together with Kim Humphreys and Sabina Hotz, we published um, some interesting findings together. But I also realized sooner or later that we are not able to capture the bigger picture by only looking at the brain, in particular when exploring potential novel better mechanisms related to uh, low back pain, in particular non-specific low back pain. And also at this time it was a, a coincidence that I've met my current project partner Stefan Schmidt from the University of Applied Sciences in Bern, Switzerland, and the collaboration with him has led to a fusion of movement science and biomechanics with my expertise in neuroimaging, which, which has formed the basis for the project we are doing now, namely to investigate the role of movement behavior and cortical mechanisms in the development and persistence of low back pain. So, today I'm working as a PI at the Integrative Spinal Research Group at the Department of Chiropractic Medicine, which is headed by Peter Schweinhardt, who has a strong international background in pain research. And our team is continuously growing with diverse backgrounds such as psychology epidemiology cognitive neuroscientists and movement scientists with the uh, main goal to uh, unravel the neurophysiological and biomechanical mechanisms of chiropractic intervention
0: wow that was uh an amazing overview thanks for that dr meyer that was terrific and uh, you know, you were talking about the teeth and my teeth still hurts a little bit uh, just from listening to, to what you yeah. did to those poor teeth. <laughs> they oh. received
1: uh, financial uh, compensation for this. Um,
0: oh, that's good to know. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So, um, so is it full-time research that you're doing? Do you have any teaching as a part of uh, your, your job?
1: Uh, yes, but um, it's it's not the main part of my work. So I help in pain courses organized by the U- University of Zurich, and I organize the internal research colloquium at the Department of Chiropractic Medicine, where the chiropractic students um, present their masterpieces. But that's it.
0: Yeah. Got it, got it. So I, I'm sure, you know, a lot of people listening are practitioners, and and uh, I think there's curiosity about what does, uh, you know, research look like? So I'm just curious, I'll just ask you this uh, for, for the sake of other people, probably, but what does what a typical day in, in your life look like?
1: Well, that's a good question, because I think there's no typical day, as this might be the case for most researchers. right so i'm my most unvarying activity in the morning is maybe (laughs) toothbrushing so so i have the privilege of being involved at at several levels of of the daily research cycle so i'm involved in very basic administrative things such uh, such as organizing the appointments of our study subjects healthy controls but also low back pain patients documenting according to good clinical practice, ethic proposals, and a big chunk of my work is also data acquisition. So in particular, functional MRI data, as we have uh, quite a complex setup, I'm sure we will have some time to talk about this um, further. And um, also MR analysis. And of course, directing my little research team. So I have a postdoc and two very... Very good um, research assistant, but also supervising master and doctoral students, a bit teaching, and also grant and manuscript
0: writing. So that's that's it basically. That's a lot. <laughs> that's a lot of stuff, <laughs> for sure. So let's we'll start to dive in here just a second and into your publications and learn more about uh, your work. And I have to say, you you have a lot of great publications and in excellent journals and. And as you mentioned, you know your work is bridging a lot of fields, such as uh, pain research, cognitive neuroscience, movement behavior, and and I think that's why I ultimately um, got really fascinated in in your research because you're trying to bridge uh, concepts together that I think really need to be bridged. Uh, and there's still many gaps uh, that appear in the literature, so. Uh, I thank you for that and your, your team for the, for the interest in, in doing that. So I wonder, uh, maybe the best thing to do, since you gave us a pretty good overview of some of the topics that interest you, uh, perhaps we can just dive into uh, some of your papers. And the, the first one uh, is identifying motor control strategies and their role in low back pain across disciplinary approach, bridging neurosciences with movement biomechanics. And for anybody unfamiliar with your work, I think this is a, uh, a really neat paper. It's in uh, Frontiers in Pain Research. Uh, so perhaps you could just guide us through uh, this overview paper about what it is you're studying and, and maybe some of the key things, key research uh, topics that uh, you think really need to be tackled in this field.
1: Yeah, well, so as you mentioned, uh, I fully agree with you. So there are important knowledge gaps, uh, especially in musculoskeletal pain research, which need to be filled. And uh, so in this Frontiers paper, it's a perspective paper. Um, we describe a novel cross-disciplinary approach connecting methods from neuroscience and biomechanics. So people move differently in pain. That's clear, but uh, the mechanisms underlying pain, injury, and movements are surprisingly unclear. So based on prior observations, which uh, demonstrated a relationship between movement and low back pain, mainly a Dutch research group uh, headed by Jop van Dien, but also others developed a theoretical framework describing a spectrum of very individual movement adaptions, so-called motor control strategies, among a spectrum. So with the two um, endpoints, tight control and loose control. And so, for example, a tight control strategy is suggested to be associated with increased muscle co-contraction, more rigid movement patterns, but less sensory input, for example. And on the other side, we have the loose control strategy which is associated or suggested to be associated with um, decreased paraspinal muscle excitability, which might come at the cost of decreased spinal stability. And of course, people move differently in pain. We all move differently in pain because we want to protect our back from further pain and injury. Um, So for tissue health in the short term, this might be beneficial. But there, there are studies or literature points into the direction that if those motor control strategies persist in the long term, they can lead to negative consequences on supraspinal and spinal levels. So, for example, a tight control strategy, which is associated with increased uh, muscle co-contraction, rigid movement patterns might also lead to less variable sensory input, and this might lead to cortical reorganization processes, in particular in the sensory motor cortex, but also to persistently increased or altered muscle activity patterns, which might lead to muscle fatigue due to stereotypical muscle activation, but also increased tissue loading, which might, uh, which might finally advance disc degeneration. Um, but as I mentioned, this, uh, this is still a theoretical framework. So those mechanisms are far from clear, in particular their interaction. And in this perspective paper, we um, ask some relevant, let's say also but clinically relevant uh, research questions, such as do such loose tight motor control strategies exist? Um, or do other motor control strategies exist? And what's their relationship to important outcomes, such as low back pain intensity, disability, and psychological factors? And on the supraspinal level, there's almost no systematic evidence about the representation of the back. So we know a lot about other extremities, such as the fingers, hands, their representation in the brain, and how they change in uh, during pain or based on everyday activities but we almost know, almost know nothing about the representation of the back in particular if there is a topographic organization along the thoracolumbar axis and that's also um, in this cross-disciplinary approach also a second aim um, to establish such cortical uh, maps of paraspinal sensory input to test how or to, yeah, to test for potential associations between these map representations and potentially dysfunctional motor control strategies that we observe in the movement lab. So, we use, um, on the brain level, we, we use, um, or our approach is to use functional magnetic resonance imaging with, with high-resolution um, to establish cortical maps of of the back representation and on the motor behavior part we use spine kinematics and and biomechanical modeling to identify um those motor control strategy phenotypes this is great
0: yeah I, i appreciate you going through that um you know the the clinician in me always wants to to try to figure out a way to bring this into the clinic and try to help people out. And your description of that tight control strategy or rigid control strategy, uh, you know, really, I think, typifies uh, quite a few people that have back pain. Certainly not everybody. Some, some people seem to have a different strategy uh, as they manage their back pain. They may have a little bit more loose, but there's plenty of people, especially in acute pain who would have this more rigid, you know, stiff co-contraction type of um, manifestation in their behavior as as what you're talking about. And, uh, you know, I'm also interested in, uh, if you could just maybe from your perspective, give, give the listener uh, perhaps some ideas of, of how you might be able to incorporate this sort of cross-disciplinary perspective uh, into practices? So is it something where do you think we can get some of this just from uh, a gate, a primitive gate observation, just like visually looking at the way people move or can we, can we measure things like reaction time or movement time in the office, that sort of thing? Like what can we, what do you think we can observe and uh I guess I'll just leave it at that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, that's an important question. It's a relevant question, and uh, I'm afraid that I can not give a satisfactory answer to it yet. The reason for this is that I think we are still in an early stage. Let's say at the early stage of translational research, which should, at the end, produce, as you say, meaningful, applicable results that directly benefit human health. Um, So for example, if you look at motor control exercises uh, which aim to restore coordinated and efficient use of the muscles that uh, support the spine, studies investigating the effect of motor control effects, uh, motor control exercises show often um, low effect sizes. So the reason for this might be indeed the existence of very individual specific motor control strategies which points towards the need of personalized uh, treatment approach right but as mentioned i think we are still in a basic research stage we have to systematically test if such motor control phenotypes exist and to evaluate their role in low back pain so with our approach I think we, we can contribute to this research as we aim to extract meaningful features from different potential low back pain contributors, such as psychological factors, biomechanics, and brain mechanisms. And the exciting part here is that with combining these features, for example, in a prediction model by using machine learning, we might actually identify their predictive power, meaning which features or combinations of features are relevant for the persistence of low back pain and yeah this takes some time as we need to acquire a lot of data in healthy subjects and and, and low back pain patients however i'm quite optimistic regarding the identification of interesting and clinically relevant results that could be translated into clinical practice in in the near future
0: yeah, terrific, and I, I, it just makes me think that there are some clinicians out there who who have a little bit of research savviness to them, and uh, and they may be able to contribute to the literature and describing perhaps how people move uh, in different pain situations, and and perhaps even helping us as researchers to really nail down uh, where this variability comes in. Because you're right. Uh, I think, uh, part of the issue is that we, well, a major part is that we learn these strategies and, uh, like you say, they can become ingrained over time and then they'll have manifestations at a cortical level or a supraspinal level that, uh, are going to have consequences ultimately on our behaviors. And I just find it so fascinating that over time, you know, these, these patterns, I guess another big question is when does, a uh, this adaptive sort of stiffening strategy or rigid strategy become maladaptive? And at what point uh, right. is it, you know, go from good to bad, so to speak? It's yeah. interesting. I, I don't know. That's, yeah,
1: really relevant questions. And uh, I think that's all. also the reason why we try to uh, recruit patients with different symptoms, to uh, symptom durations. Um, to get a picture when these motor control phenotypes get maladaptive, right? And for this, we also need not only crossover crossover studies, but also longitudinal um, studies, right?
0: Totally, totally. I'm I'm just yeah. curious. Have you have you seen people with you know wildly different strategies who who have low back pain and I don't know. I just to to me in practice sometimes I see somebody who says they're in a ton of pain but then I look at their movements and I think wow this is so much different than the last person <laughs> that I saw. It just amazes me sometimes the the extreme differences.
1: Absolutely. I think there is a great variability regarding these uh, multi-control adaptations. And sorry, I meant cross-sectional studies, not crossover
0: studies. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. Yeah. Yeah, great. Um, so let's let's go on to another study, and this was um, all, These are all fascinating studies. But, so I'm just uh, excited to be having this conversation. But uh, the next one was in uh, JMPT, and it's called neural responses of posterior to anterior movement on lumbar vertebrae: a functional magnetic resonance imaging study. So you mentioned that uh, you're using fMRI. Uh, to study uh, the brain and what happens uh, under pain and, and with these movement adaptations, so I wonder if you could tell us about uh, what what you did in this paper for us.
1: Yeah, of course. So, so the background is that increasing evidence shows that supraspinal processes, brain processes related to sensory motor processing, might play a crucial role in persistence of low back pain, beside um, dysfunction of the musculoskeletal system, for example. So this one was one of the rare studies investigating the cortical representation of paraspinal sensory input using a clinical relevant stimulus. So healthy subjects lied in prone position in the MR scanner, while a manual therapist applied controlled anterior-posterior pressure to different lumbar segments namely l1 l3 l5 in a randomized order and here one of the main challenges for us was to limit head motion because pressure stimuli can induce a lot of unwanted head motion unwanted because head motion can seriously affect fmri data quality and yeah the results um were in line with, let's say, earlier work of uh, Painfield and colleagues, the neurosurgeon, uh, uh, which uh, created these, um, the sensory homunculus and the motor homunculus. Um, so our results, results were in line because we observed uh, some medial activation in the primary somatosensory cortex during those um, pressure stimuli. And, and further work, and that's also what we aim for in in future studies, is to explore this in more detail. Uh, in particular, first to establish detailed cortical maps of thoracolumbar afferent input, and second to test potential associations between those maps and and potential movement strategies. Uh, as I mentioned, we we identify in the movement lab experiments. Yes,
0: is there anything unique? about this posterior to anterior pressure that the therapist is applying to the spine versus maybe just touching lightly over the paraspinal muscles or something like that? Is there anything unique to to what we're doing or is it just give us an idea that something's going on in the brain?
1: Yeah, I think there is a a difference regarding the between light touch and uh, more pressure, because I think we uh, stimulate, or with the increasing pressure, I also think that we stimulate uh, muscle spindles and the muscle spindles are the main proprioceptors in our body. So I think we might be, we might tackle also muscle spindle activity by applying or by increasing the pressure in, in comparison to
0: light touch. Okay, and and that that brings me to uh, my next uh, point and and, uh, and question and and that is that in in other papers, uh, you had talked about factors contributing to motor control adaptations and low back pain, and that they've been pretty extensively studied on the motor output side, but much less attention is being paid to the sensory input side, specifically, proprioception. And when it comes to chiropractic research, a, a big uh, theoretical point is that what chiropractors do is really to stimulate uh, afferent neurons, particularly from proprioceptors. And I guess the thought is that that uh, you know, can contribute to, to better outcomes in terms of pain as well as, as human movement. So I'm just curious, uh, I know that your group is really interested in this, studying the proprioceptive part of things, so maybe we could just have a a brief discussion about that.
1: Yes, this is important, because as we know, the functioning of the sensory system, especially proprioceptive function, is crucial for appropriate motor control, and uh, Today, we know that the muscle spindles, which are embedded in the muscle belly, in the so-called interfusal fibers, play a major role in proprioceptive signaling. So evidence shows that the muscle spindles are the main proprioceptors in our body, as mentioned. And I do assume uh, here that um, chiropractic intervention, in particular spinal manipulation, has an effect on the activity of paraspinal muscle spindles as it has been already shown in animal models, for example. So through manipulating proprioceptive input, spinal manipulation might have an effect on motor control and thereby therefore motor behavior. And I think one of the current challenge is that we can't directly measure or isolate proprioceptive function in humans. Um, there are some indirect measures of, let's say, or, or let's say proxy measures of proprioceptive function in humans, such as measuring the repositioning error or, or measures such as the thresholds to, te- to detect passive motion or also balance control measures using a force plate to assess possible sway, for example. Um, I think here it would make sense to develop methods which are able to, to test, uh, Proprioceptive function in a more direct way in humans, and a promising example here. Uh, promising example here is using vibration as vibrotactile stimulation with frequencies about eighty hertz has been shown to be a potent stimulus for modulating muscle spinal activity.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's really fascinating uh, to to think about using that as, as some sort of um, control or other, other group uh, to put up against uh, let's say an adjustment or any other treatment for that matter, that, that would be uh, just fascinating to look at. Now, I, I know I've been reading uh, over the last few years about this idea of brain smudging uh, that seems to happen with pain. And my you know, it's not, not my area of research, uh, but my understanding is that what happens in the, in the cortex is that we essentially, when the pain stimulus comes on, it seems to, uh, we'll say disrupt or create some dysfunction, uh, within the, uh, the hemispheres. And, uh, Mm -hmm. so I wonder if you could maybe just talk about that. And, and do you think if, uh, You know, this research on proprioception and adding afferent input, do you think that that could somehow disrupt uh, possibly this brain smudging that occurs? Mm -hmm.
1: That's an interesting question. So, yeah, smudging is a term that is often used to describe the loss, let's say the loss of discrete cortical organization of sensory input or motor output. Maybe I can give you here a good example. There was a nice study of uh, Henry Tsao and Paul Hodges some years ago, where they investigated the cortical motor organization of different paraspinal muscles. So the assumption here is that we have a differential or, let's say, a topographic organization along the motor cortex of different muscles such as the multifidus or erector spiny, uh, for appropriate fine-grade control of our paraspinal muscles. And using TMS, so transcranial magnetic stimulation, they observed that the cortical motor representation is changed in low back pain patients compared to healthy controls. More specifically, low back pain patients demonstrated an overlap of the multifidus and erector uh, spiny muscles in the motor cortex which points to a loss of discrete cortical organization and this is what what is meant with smudging so also based on their results they concluded that training of differential activation of paraspinal muscles might be necessary to restore optimal function
0: Hmm. That's fascinating. So that brings us full circle back to this rigid control versus non-rigid versus variability. And it seems that like that variability is so important. Uh, At least it would seem I'm making that hypothesis (laughs) Uh, because I don't know if that's true, but based upon what you just said, I would predict now that having that variability would be key to preventing this smudging phenomenon absolutely
1: yes variability and differential movement of the perispinal muscles i agree
0: huh so maybe that's where the adding you know uh manipulating uh, chiropractic type of manipulation would add this afferent proprioceptive input and potentially break the cycle if you will of somebody who's in that rigid control strategy, or maybe just be one stimulus to go in that right direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. I I love it. Uh and so I could see all sorts of studies being done to try to answer those types of questions. Cause I think those would be, you know, if if you can get to the idea of where does the protection, if you will, from that rigid strategy help you out and where does it start hindering if we can try to identify those tipping points if you will i think it's going to be a huge uh boost to clinicians and to researchers uh, trying to really tackle this issue Uh, it's just fascinating absolutely um if you are once able to
1: reliably identify those different motor control phenotypes so
0: i fully agree yeah Cool. Well, let's, let's get to another paper then, uh, or actually, you know what I wanted to ask you, um, this paper was, uh, had, you know, no pain, uh, the, the participants had, uh, um, non-painful pressure applied to them. We'll say, uh, do we know what, um, painful pressure might appear like in the brain, uh, or have people with, uh, other types of pain been subjected to studies like this? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Good question, which I can't answer, <laughs> mainly because of the head motion problem we we observed um, in the scanner by applying um, pressure forces. So by increasing the pressure force in pilot projects, we observed um, severe head motion um, and we were not able to detect or separate two activation patterns from confounding head motion patterns induced neural activity. So, furthermore, applying posterior anterior pressure and looking at brain activity is, despite its clinical relevance, um, quite a dirty approach as we move or stimulate different paraspinal tissues and also target target different mechanoreceptors in, in different tissues. So this was also one of the limitations of this study. And um, we we therefore radically changed the stimulus to be more specific in particular regarding the activation of different mechanoreceptors. So based on this, we changed to, or due to this, we changed to vibrotactile stimulation because as mentioned, vibration can be a powerful stimulus and evidence shows that 80 hertz vibration is able to modulate muscle spindle activity and therefore proprioceptive input. On the other hand, we can use a control stimulus such as 20 hertz, hertz which should mainly target mechanoreceptors in superficial skin layers. So, for this. Um, in the last three years, uh, we, together with the Lucerne University of Applied Sciences, we developed an AMR compatible pneumatic vibration device. We call it Pneuivit, which is able to stimulate the back along the thoracolumbar axis with different frequencies. So, using this methodology, um, for the first time, I think we, we are able to establish detailed cortical maps of tactile and proprioceptive input of paraspinal afferents. And um, we already performed pilot experiments in healthy subjects, and first findings are really promising, Promising, as we found distinct activation patterns in sub of the sensory motor cortex. So it seems um, that uh, with vibrotactile stimulation, we are far um, better regarding specificity um, if you compare it to the anterior posterior pressure and so the next step would be of course to acquire more data also in low back pain patients with uh, different symptoms duration to test if uh, those maps differ between patients and healthy controls and how they relate to the motor control strategies we identify in the
0: movement lab yeah excellent excellent and you mentioned you know how difficult it is to do this kind of research, but you know, it's just so important and uh, finding, finding ways around some of these issues like the vibro tactile is a smart uh, way to get around uh, some of these issues to keep the head still and yet still get to the uh, ultimate answer that you need. And, and we need it. So (laughs) keep it up. Yes.
1: Yes, It's, I mean, it's also very, it's more comfortable for the subjects because they are lying in supine position or no? with anterior posterior pro- pressure they are lying in prone position and it was really a challenge because we had to develop a special pillow um that they can breathe normally so it it, it induces also a lot of stress in the mr scanner
0: ah oh, um, fascinating
1: in, in, in prone position right so yeah now yeah. it's very comfortable for them
0: yeah. <laughs> well that's good <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's get into our uh last paper here and this is about fear avoidance beliefs and how they're associated with reduced lumbar spine flexion during object lifting in pain-free adults. And this is in the journal Pain and just just published here in the summer 2021. So, could you could you guide us through this paper, Michael? Yeah, sure. So, the background for this study was
1: the observation and yeah this has been nicely shown in other studies that there are still strong beliefs in the general population about the lifting technique so lifting with a rounded back is generally considered as dangerous or even a cause for low back pain whereas lifting with a straight back is considered as the safer technique and yeah although recent evidence shows clearly that there is no association between the lifting technique and the incidence of low back pain. So in support of those beliefs, it has been shown that in, uh, or that low back pain patients exhibit less lumbar range of motion during lifting when they have strong beliefs about the lifting technique. So the more harmful they perceive lifting with a rounded back the less lumbar range of motion during lifting, and this has been interpreted as a protective strategy to to protect the back from further pain and injury. Um, so that's the background. And in this study, we were interested if such an association between lifting beliefs and spinal motion already exists in healthy, pain-free subjects. And such an observation would indicate a specific relationship between psychological factors and spinal motion in the absence of pain. So pain-free people came um, to our movement lab and performed daily activities such as lifting, running, walking, going up the stairs, chair rising, and so on. And in this study, we were specifically interested in spinal motion uh, during lifting of course. And uh, we used a 20-camera WICAN system to track the motion of the thoracolumbar spine with with high resolution. Prior to spine kinematic assessments, people were asked to fill out several pain-related fear questionnaires. And among these, they filled filled out the FODA questionnaire, which uh, includes pictures of daily activities, and people had to rate those pictures according to the perceived harmfulness for the back. And we were specifically interested in one item, one picture showing a person lifting a weight with a rounded back. So coming to the results, um, first of all, we were surprised about the high variability regarding the, the ratings of, of, of this, um, uh, let's call it for the lift item, uh, round back beliefs, um, which is in line with the evidence that such lifting beliefs already exist in the pain, pain-free population. And we then performed regression analysis to test for potential linear relationships between those rounded back beliefs and spinal motion during the lifting behavior. And what we observed was a negative relationship between those yeah, let's say rounded back beliefs and lumbar motion, um, we did not observe such a relationship in the thoracic spine. So to conclude, the stronger those beliefs in pain-free subjects, the less lumbar flexion they showed during lifting. So this result suggests an association between lifting beliefs and lumbar motion in the absence of, of low back pain, which might be relevant.
0: Huh? Yeah. Yeah. That is. Uh, wow. I love these kind of studies because, um, you know, the the literature, as you said, uh, suggesting you know no no relationship uh, between the uh, the the posture and and future injury, for example, and so then you show people you know uh, pictures of things and. You show them a picture of flexing forward, and then they're the people that don't move a whole lot. Have more of that rigid control, it seems. It's fascinating. I mean, mm-hmm. it really is. Uh, the, I'm I'm just going to read uh, for everybody uh, one part, uh, one description in your discussion section. I, I thought it was fascinating, so I'm just going to go ahead and read it. It says the reduced lumbar flexion during lifting is likely. Achieved through altered neuromuscular activation and coordination, consistent with reports describing a protective response, i.e., a tight control strategy, characterized by stiffening lumbar segments through antagonistic muscle activation. In patients with low back pain, such as a protective strategy has been suggested as being beneficial in the short term by avoiding further pain or injury. In the long term, however, maintaining this protractive strategy has been linked with pronociceptive mechanisms. In other words, uh, greater uh, pain-associated mechanisms for low back pain, persistence through reduced movement, rigid motor behavior, and associated guarding with increased paraspinal muscle activation that may lead to increased spinal loading. That, that really, then again, f- I think full circle gets us back to the beginning of our conversation where you're talking about psychology and, and biomechanics, and that's certainly all playing in, in this particular paper, uh, that the fears, the, uh, just the observations, the visually looking at things and how subjects are interpreting you know what's going on and that they then manifest essentially opposite behavior uh i mean wow uh (laughs) where do we go from here on on this stuff this is this is neat yeah absolutely good question
1: so uh i think now we can speculate that uh, this observation might represent indeed a tight control strategy in pain-free subjects right so based on beliefs, uh, which might become relevant in a, in a future low back pain episode. Um, and according to the models of Yap uh, van Dien and, and others, uh, a tight control strategy, if persistent might have negative consequences. So as mentioned on spinal and supraspinal levels, uh, maintaining low back pain. But I also think here, this has been first to be systematically tested. So we use, uh, we, we, just need a longitudinal design to test the causal effect, right? Um, but it's it's a fascinating result. I agree.
0: Absolutely, yeah. So <clears throat> one uh, one last uh, question uh, from this multidisciplinary treatment perspective, um, and we've talked a little bit about this already with uh, how chiropractic care, or perhaps even exercise. Uh, physical therapy and those sorts of uh, interventions. How you know modulating perhaps the proprioceptive aspects of of things may get people moving a bit better. Could perhaps uh, modify any potential smudging that's going on. I wonder um, if you have any further thoughts on how how these types of interventions may affect sensory motor control in, in ways that we haven't talked about uh, and, or maybe some psychological or, or pain perspectives that you have on the issue.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we know that, yeah, chiropractic intervention works and it's quite exciting to see the progress of chiropractic research and more and more upcoming findings regarding the underlying mechanisms on spinal and supraspinal levels. Um I can only speculate now and share some hypotheses we aim to test. So let's assume that we can reliably identify a tight control strategy using our biomechanical approach. Um, one assumption would be that this strategy would also be associated with a smudging of proprioceptive cortical maps in, in patients. And uh, chiropractic intervention might help here to to restore biomechanical and proprioceptive function in combination, of course, also with advice, for example, regarding unfavorable beliefs. And uh, this might finally lead to a restoration of brain organization. Um, However, with regards to brain organization of the back here, we are still at a very, let's say, basic um, research level, early level, as we have to evaluate first if those brain changes in sensory motor cortices represent them, uh, represent a battle mechanism, or if they are simply an epiphenomenon because of the changed uh, motor behavior, um,
0: the changed sensory and motor output, right? Right, right, exactly. You know, and I'm just thinking about that paper still about you know these subjects looking at various pictures and whatnot. Now I think, you know, I wonder if you do an intervention, would they change their would they change their perception of what may be so called good or bad, uh, you know, and and associated with their pain or fear. Uh, it's interesting. Um, without even looking at any motor control, would their perception change if they had some sort of care? Applied, I don't know, but um, there's so many questions that I think uh, come out of this that I'm excited to you know read about your future studies and perhaps uh, if you're interested, we could have you back on the podcast at some point in the future to tell us about uh, all the latest studies you've done by that point.
1: <laughs> yeah, sure, would we'll be happy to to show the, those results if we have them. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, great. So. Uh, Dr. Meyer, a goal of this podcast series is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science or just we'll say science in general, but specifically chiropractic science. Can you offer any advice to aspiring chiropractors or students who may wish to become scientists or researchers?
1: Oh, yes. So chiropractic research is an exciting uh, area because there are so many open questions, which in my view can be best answered in an interdisciplinary environment, right? So my advice would be to look for a research team with a strong interdisciplinary focus. And uh, there are so many chiropractic researchers out there with um, diverse backgrounds, such as biomechanics, epidemiology, neurophysiology, psychology, and connecting those research teams with also clinicians makes this research area even more exciting and forms really the basis for better treatment options in the future for our patients.
0: Fantastic. Uh, Dr. Meyer, I really appreciate uh, you coming on the interview today. I think people are going to learn a lot from this interview, and there's a lot of exciting research that's going on and and your group is doing a, a masterful job. So, so thanks for all that you do. Thank you very much, Dean, for inviting me. That was a great interview with Dr. Michael Meyer. I had a lot of fun and learned a lot in that interview. I look forward to bringing you more great interviews in the near future.